Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. I wonder if I'm the only one, I don't think that I am, that ever wishes that you could go back in time and talk to a younger version of yourself. <laughs> and I can tell by your response that I'm not the only one uh, that thinks about that and, and that wishes that you could. Because um, to be able to see uh, then what you know now would be a most precious gift. And how awesome would it be to be able to do that? Now, the most common reason, as I think about it, that I find that I want to do that is because my values change over time. And so the things that I value today are vastly different than the things that were valuable to me at different stages of my life. And if I had the foresight then to see what I would value today, then I would be able to set myself up a little better than I did. And this isn't an interesting thing about life that we tend to value uh, different things at different seasons. So if you're young here, if you can remember back into your youth, when you're young, you place your value on things, on experiences, on discovery. You know, those things are fresh and you're just coming into life. And so that's what's valuable to you at a young age. And, and you don't value so much at that time. You don't value time because you feel like you're eternal and, and that it's never going to end and that you have so much of it. You don't usually value family because you haven't experienced enough life to understand their value. And you don't really value health because you have it. And you take it for granted and you think, well, I'm always going to have energy and I'm always going to be spry and, and, and all. So you just don't value those things when you're young. But then when you kind of move into the middle age years and your values change because life changes, now you value different things. You begin to value money a little bit more. You see the importance of it. You value, uh, you value status, becoming something. You value achievement. You want to make a mark. You want to do something. And you value validation. You know, we want to be validated. We want to feel like we're being effective and that our life is, is, is affecting somebody. And, and we like validation. That, that's the reason why social media is so successful, because of the instant validation that you can receive at the posting of a photo or the making of a comment or the telling of a joke. You get a thumbs up, ah, validation. It's like heroin. You know, in the middle years, we, we appreciate that. Then you move into the golden years and values change a little bit more. You know, in your golden years, you value your kids. You know, during the Middle Ages, things were so crazy, you kind of, you know, maybe not just took them for granted. Sometimes you just wanted them gone, <laughs> you know. And I'm, I, listen, my wife was away for the past three days, you know. And so, you know, it's, it's, I love my kids, but I am not a homeschool. I mean, I'm a homeschool dad. I am not a homeschool dad. I realized that, you know, that I wasn't wired for that, you know. Um, but during the Middle Ages, not so much. But in the golden years, you know, now you value your kids more. You value your health. You value energy. You value the legacy. Different things that, that meant nothing to you before, now they mean something. And then once you're old and you get into that stage of life where you're almost done, now you value all the things that you took for granted throughout the rest of your life. You know, so you, 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 you value any opportunity that you still have to be effective. 
you value every day because you realize for the first time in your existence that, that there's not an unlimited number of them and you value probably more than anything else in your oldest years, you value time because you can't get any more of it, that your hourglass is where it is and time is of great value when you're old. Now, the reason why... We have regret as we move through the various stages and we wish we could go back and talk to a younger version of ourselves is because we lack vision in the seasons of our life to see what things are truly valuable. We become blinded, as it were, by maybe the world or the stage of life that we're in and we can't see into the future well enough to know how to apply ourselves in the best way. Well, In the text that we have here, the interaction between Jesus and a person that we're going to study tonight in Matthew chapter 19, we're going to see Jesus encounter a man who has three highly valued things. Pretty much in every age spectrum, these are three things that most people want. They are, first of all, riches. The man that he's going to encounter is a wealthy individual. We're told that. We also find that he is young. He has youth. And the third thing that he has is he has power or he has influence because he's a ruler. And so when you read this interaction across the span of Matthew and Mark and Luke, you realize this is a rich, young ruler. And so he has three things that most people spend the majority of the energy of their life chasing after. He has these things. And yet the reason why this young man comes to Jesus is because he recognizes that he's lacking something. He realizes that though he has things that most people are seeking after, he's missing something that is the key to his capacity to be able to enjoy what he has. And he sees something in Jesus, and so he seizes the opportunity to encounter him and to ask a question to find out what is the meaning or the secret of life. That's what he wants to know. What is the meaning or the secret of life? And it should just be telling right off the bat that he didn't find it in riches, he isn't finding it in youth, and he didn't find it in being powerful. But he sees that Jesus might have the answer, and so he asks. Now, the bad news about the passage is that the young man does not leave getting what he came to find. But the good news of the passage is that Jesus gave him the answer, which means that recorded for all of eternity to anyone who is willing to see it, the answer to the greatest question that Siri has ever been asked, what is the meaning of life? Jesus answers it. At very least, he answers the path of where we can find it. The passage breaks into three parts. There is, first of all, the interaction, the conversation that happens between Jesus and the man. Then second of all, an explanation. Jesus gives instruction to his disciples about what just happened after the man walks away. And then the third section, is, which is Matthew chapter 20, is an illustration, a parable that Jesus told to make a point connected to the instruction that came from the interaction. And so it's kind of a long segment, but it all surrounds the same concept. And so we begin 
in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 19 with the interaction. Notice what it says. It says that, Behold, one came to him and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And so it begins with a proposition. This young ruler comes to Jesus and he wants something from Jesus. And so he comes with his paper and his pen and he wants to draw up a contract. He says, what must I do? What's the terms on my side that you might give eternal life to me? I recognize more mortality. I recognize that I'm lacking something. I recognize that this cloud of my finiteness is hindering me from really enjoying and seeing clearly. So what do you want from me that I might obtain from you? He wants to enter into an agreement with Jesus. Now what this young man does know is he knows that he's not satisfied and that he's not enjoying his life. And the reason for that is because he doesn't have something that he needs. And so to his credit, he knows that he is lacking something. What he doesn't know is God. And he doesn't know who it is that he's talking to. And the reason we know that he know is that is not only because of Jesus' response, but because of the kind of question that he asks. What must I do that you might give something to me? Now, what he's doing in that very thing is that he is making a mistake that many make, and that is that he is seeking to create God in the image of man. See, how does man operate with man? We are quid pro quo. If you want something from me, then you better give something to me and vice versa. That's how things work in the realms of men. And so he immediately attaches a value that drives society to the everlasting, omnipotent, all-creating God. And he reveals in that that he has no idea who God is and Jesus acknowledges it with his response. Notice in verse 17. It says that he said unto him, why do you call me good? Now, I love that question because, first of all, we obviously we know that Jesus is good, right? But what he's saying to this young man by asking him that question is that if you think that's the way this works, then how can you ascribe goodness to me? Because that's not good. See, if you think it's a quid pro quo thing and that if you're rich enough powerful enough or smart enough to ask the right questions, then you can get what you want, then that makes me selective. That makes me not fair. That makes me, I'll give it to some that know, but I can't give it to some that don't have or can do nothing for me. And that's not good. That's not God. So he says, why do you call me good? You reveal that you don't even know who I am. And then he says, there is none good but one that is God. Now that's good news because that means that God is actually good. But then Jesus says, okay, you want a contract? There is a contract. If you actually want to enter into an agreement with me wherein you provide something and in return I give you something, here's what it is. He says, if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. He says that at the end of verse 17. If you will enter into life, if you want life, then you keep the commandments. Now, I love that response of Jesus because do you notice a little word that Jesus left off in his response? What did the man ask for? He said eternal life, right? Jesus said if you want to enter into life. And what Jesus was pointing to here is that eternal isn't the issue at hand. The issue is life itself. You're not even alive. 
If you even want to live, if you even want to know what it means to live, forget about eternity. We'll get to that later. But you have everything that everyone wants, but you're not even alive. You're not even living. But if you want to enter into life, then here's the terms. If you want to do it by contract, if you want quid pro quo, here it is. Keep the commandments. Huh. Well, verse 18, the young man replies, and he said unto him, which? And Jesus said, you shall do no murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus gave five commandments, all five of them having to do with man's relationship with man. There are four commandments that have to do with man's relationship with God. And there are six commandments that have to do with man's relationship with man. Jesus gives him five of those. And then he adds on one that is not in the law, but that sums it up by saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, interestingly, Jesus leaves off one of those commands that deal with man-to-man relationship. And it happens to be the one that this man struggles with, that Jesus doesn't mention in the interaction. And so the young man gets excited in verse 20 when he hears what Jesus says, because these don't happen to be his struggle in life. And he gets excited, and the young man said, all these things have I kept from my youth up. He's, He's getting hopeful here because he's thinking, this might actually work. We might actually be able to make a deal. This is like the king of all Shark Tank experiences here. I'm about to earn effortlessly the thing that I need the most in life. He says, all these things that I have, I've kept from my youth up. But, but then he realizes, but wait a minute, I have been keeping this thing, but yet I haven't received the thing that I'm seeking. So what gives? And so he asks, he says, what lack I yet? I've done these things from my youth, but what's missing in my life? And so Jesus said unto him, okay, if you will be perfect. Now, the word perfect little asterisk here, when you see it in the King James Bible, it doesn't mean morally perfect, meaning that you are sinless or qualified in some way before the eyes of God. The word perfect means complete or whole. That is, if you would be whole or if you would make it whole, then Jesus says there is one thing. He says, go and sell what you have and give to the poor And you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus says, listen, if you really want to enter into life, the one thing that you're lacking, he goes, you need to go and sell all your stuff and need to come follow me. You need to go, sell, come, follow. Go, sell, come, follow. Those were the things that Jesus said to this young man. Now watch his response when Jesus says it. Verse 22. It says, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. He had great possessions. Anybody in here have great possessions? I do. I have some great possessions. There's some things in my life that I I absolutely enjoy owning, that I absolutely love having, that are very hard for me to let go of, in, in all honesty, because they're just things that are useful for me, you know, right place, right time type things, and I just enjoy some of the things I have in my life. Anybody else? Or am I the only one? You know, <laughs> we all have things that we would call, we have great possessions. But it tells us here that because of the great possessions, that was the reason, it says that he went away sorrowful. 
Now, I love Mark's gospel because Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus, looking at him, loved him as he was going away. Meaning that Jesus wasn't going, eh, too bad, so sad. Jesus wasn't going like, oh, you don't want to meet the terms? It's not so valuable to you anymore having life? Oh, too bad. No, it says that Jesus, looking at him, it says that he loved him, but Jesus let him go. He didn't stop him from going. Jesus let him go. But here's what Jesus was was thinking, and here's what he's about to explain, and here's the message for you and me as it concerns this man, his great possessions, and the sorrow with which he went away. What Jesus knew that he lets us in on is that this man's issue was that he was blinded by his possessions. It wasn't the fact that he was rich, because it is not immoral or amoral to have wealth or to have great possessions there's nowhere in the bible that says that if you want to be saved then that means you have to go sell everything and give your money to the poor and come and follow jesus this instruction is singularly given to this man It's never given to Jesus in any of his other sermons that it's contingent for our salvation. It's never preached that way by Paul. We don't see that that being a prerequisite anywhere in the Bible. We know that salvation comes by faith because of grace. So we're not saved because we give up. See, it's not a salvation issue for this man. It's a sight issue. He's not saying you need to get rid of your things so that you can be saved. He's saying you need to get rid of your things so that you can see. Because the greatness of what you possess and your unquenchable desire to obtain and to possess riches is keeping you back from seeing what's really valuable and from entering into the life that God has intended for man to live. How does this work? Back in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave this instruction, and what he does is he attaches possessions and loving things to a condition of spiritual blindness. Because that's what loving things and possessiveness does. It causes you to be spiritually blind. By the way, message title is Seeing Through the Eye of the Needle. And if you know the passage, you'll understand the play on words in that. Because this man, his his big issue is that he's blind. He cannot see the condition that he himself is in. Now watch what Jesus says in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 6. He says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, what you value is what you're going to give your attention to, and that's what's going to have a hold on your heart. Now, we all understand what Jesus is saying there. He's speaking it in plain English. Don't store up treasures on earth, store up treasures in heaven. But then he says something that's kind of confusing, and it almost sounds like it doesn't fit right here. But listen to what he says next. He says, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is single. Now the word single means it's translated properly folded together, clear, good, and sound. So in other words, Jesus is saying, if you have the right perspective, if your vision is clear, if you can see clearly, 
to be able to discern between what is truly valuable and what is not valuable. If your eye is single and it's working right, your vision is clear, then he says your whole body, that is your whole life, every part of your being shall also be full of light. Now, light is the agent of sight. Light is what allows us to see. The reason I can't see many of you right now is because of this light that's blinding me in the face. But it's what helps you see me. Because that's what light does. Light is an agent of sight. And so what Jesus is saying is that if our our vision is right, if we can view what's valuable and, and we see it, and he told us what it is, it's heavenly things, not earthly things. Then he said that our whole life is gonna be full of light. But he says in verse 23, If your eye is evil, now the word evil is translated, this is literal Greek to or Aramaic to English translation, it means diseased, damaged, blind, or bad. Meaning that your vision, the way you see, and he's not talking about the physical sight, 2015, 2040, 2020, he's not talking about that, he's talking about your spiritual vision, your spiritual perspective. And he says, if it's bad, if it's damaged, if you can't see clearly, then he says, then your whole body will be full of darkness. That means your whole life is going to be lived where you have a sense that you're groping in the dark. I don't know why I exist. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. I don't understand the meaning of life. I don't know what I was made for. I feel like I try something, I like it for a week, and then I hate it. And I feel like I'm going around and around in circles, and with every passing year, I'm getting older, but I'm not going anywhere. That's a life that has no vision. I can't see clearly. And Jesus is saying that if your eyesight, if your vision is damaged, that's going to be the outcome of it. Now, he switches back to the whole idea of treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. So it's not something different. It's one and the same. Watch this, verse 24. He says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon was the god of money, but it represents riches. It represents possessions. It represents intrinsically valuable things. That's what it represents. And so what Jesus is saying in summary here is that if our eyes are set upon earthly treasures, if earthly possessions, earthly material things are the ambition, the drive, and the desire of our life, then what we value is going to be what we view, and then what we view is going to determine the quality of our vision. And that's going to be either good or bad. Therefore, If our eyesight is set on things that are truly, eternally valuable, then we're going to have vision and clarity in our lives. But if our eyesight is set upon things that are worldly and temporary and fleeting and valueless, then we're going to spend our lives wandering and we could have riches, we could have youth, we could have influence and power, but we're going to go away sorrowful because we can't see the thing that we really need. And that's exactly what it's calling. There are two things that the rich young ruler cannot see as he encounters Jesus looking for the meaning of life. The first thing that he can't see is that he can't see who is inches away from his face. He can't see Jesus. Oh, he can see the physical Jesus. 
He could see the hair and the beard and the white skin and the pale complexion and, and the white flowing robes and the hand that's angled just about just right. He sees, he sees the halo. He can see all of the physical attributes of who he's standing in front of, but he cannot see Jesus. He knows nothing of the fullness that he provides when he comes into a life. He knows nothing of what we've seen as we've watched Jesus change person after person, healing and making whole from the inside out. He knows nothing of that. He knows nothing of what it is to sit in his presence and to drink of his glory and to feel his favor and to know that you're saved and to know the glory of an eternal life with him. He knows nothing of that. He's so full of the things that he's adding into his life that he knows nothing of the fullness that Jesus gives. And the other thing that he can't see because of his blindness is he cannot see the chains that his great possessions have incarcerated him with. He came hopeful, he left sorrowful, though he was given the solution. He couldn't see that the possessions that he had were the source of his sorrow. Isn't that amazing? I mean, how many of you in here right now, honestly, if you weren't listening to this message and you didn't already know what the right answer, young and influential? I mean, you know, again, you don't know this message. I mean, honestly, right? And yet this man has it and he's sad. And he just walked away from the presence of Jesus. And thing. There are two amazing invisible prisons that exist in this world. One, as we're looking at, is just the treasures. We see it in this young man. We see it all throughout the Bible. We see people that miss out on what God has for their life because they can't let go of the things that they love, the possessions that they have. They can't just live with an open hand. And they miss out. I, I think of, you know, you read the story of Ruth, you know. And Ruth kind of falls in, in, into line with this man, Boaz, who has like this, you know, life. And they end up becoming like the great-great-grandparents of King David. But do you know that there was a man who kind of had dibs on Ruth above Boaz? There was someone more qualified to meet the conditions than Boaz. But he couldn't marry Ruth because it would interrupt his flow of stuff, the things that he had going on in his life. It was inconvenient for him. So he forfeited being the great-great-grandfather of King David and the great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of King Jesus in his incarnate self, because he was too consumed with what he had in his stuff, living with a closed hand. Riches can be a terrible prison. They're an invisible prison, incarcerate people all the time. The other invisible prison, and this is a totally different message, but I'll mention it because it's worthy of mention in this context, is the prison of titles. There can be nothing more incarcerating than a title. When someone puts a title on your life and you grab a hold of it and make it your identity. When someone says, hey, you can sing, and you hold on to that, and you say, that's who I am, I'm a singer. You have just become incarcerated by a title. When you work for a degree or you achieve a goal, and that goal gives to you a label or a title, and you hold to that, I'm an actor. I made it. I'm on my way to having a gold star in Hollywood. You know, I'm going to be there. I'm an actor. That's who I am. That's my identity. What you've done is you have traded your life and you've traded what God put in you for the one thing that you've sought to live after. Listen, there is no such thing as a title other than that you are a Christian, that you're a son or a daughter of the living God. If you're a Christian, that's your title. And what that means is that you're not one thing. You're not a teacher. You're not a singer. You're not an actor. You're not a preacher. You're a child of God. 
And what that means is that you'll do something for a while and then God's going to move you into something else because he puts seeds of glory in us that span spectrums of different experiences. And there's a freedom in walking with him because he does things in us and brings things out of us at different times of our life. And we can be incarcerated from those things because we hold on to something too dearly that we have in our life right now. That's what happened to King Saul. See, he grabbed a hold of the title. I'm the king and he wouldn't let go of it. This is my title. This is my identity. This is who I am. And it ended up ruining his life. No, king is not who you are. King is what you get to do. King is a privilege that God has laid upon you for this season in his will. But if he moves you out of that, it's because he has something else for you that's even better and for you to hold on to it. And that's what happened. He lost his mind. He became insane because he couldn't let go of a title that God had given to him. Titles can be extremely dangerous things. Well, the man walks away sad. Jesus is not going to pass up a teaching moment. He begins now to explain to his disciples. He gives an explanation to them teaching them concerning what just took place. Notice in verse 23. It says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, so he turns to the twelve, and he said, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, we've all, if you've been around the Bible at all, people have tried to make this verse say a thousand things other than what it says. Well, the eye of the needle was a gate in Jerusalem. And it was so narrow of a gate that you couldn't go through it unless you let go of everything that you had and you only went through with just yourself. And so what Jesus... No, 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 no. I want you to listen very carefully to what Jesus says. He says that it is easier for a camel, humps, big, smelly camel. It is easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a little bitty needle You ever try to thread a needle? That's frustrating. It's hard to get a thread through the eye of a needle. It's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus said that for reaction, and he got it. Verse 25. It says that when his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them, meaning that he looked at them and he discerned. When he beholds, he doesn't just look casually on the outside, that he saw the wrestling match that was going on inside the heart. Because this is the wrestling match in every human heart, isn't it? And he says, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are impossible. Now listen, the issue with the camel and the needle's eye is not the ability of the camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's not the ability, because you could do it. I'm telling you right now, if you dared me or bet me or told me you would give me enough money, I would get a camel through the eye of a needle if I had to do it one single cell at a time. It could be done. And I'm certain that there's some biblical critic somewhere that has done this somewhere. Put it on YouTube and see, and probably you'll find it. It's not an issue of ability because, you know what, probably it could be done. Ask Steve Jobs. He would figure it out. He, He would have figured it out. It's not an issue of ability, it's an issue of probability. The idea is, why would a camel go through the eye of a needle? Can you imagine that? You see him chewing his cud, he sits down, he sees a needle. He goes, you know what, I'm going to go through that little hole. (laughs) At least I want to try. I mean, you ain't lived until you've gone through the eye of a needle. You know, he's thinking, listen, it wouldn't happen. 
And that's really what Jesus is trying to say here when he's saying that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Is he saying it's not the ability, it's the probability. God is the one who opens all hearts. It's not possible for anyone to be saved apart from the grace of God reaching their life. Jesus says, I have not chosen, or you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. So God is involved in anyone coming to him as rich man or poor man. And there's rich people here that have given their life to Christ. I know wealthy people that have given their life to Christ. That's not the issue. The issue isn't ability. The issue is probability. And what he's saying is that when your life is so held by the things that you have, when you are so bound by the possessions that you don't want to let go of, the thing that, God, this is so precious to me, and you can have everything in my life, but you can't have this one thing. And God, you know... If that is the position of your life, then the probability of you coming to know him in a personal and real and intimate way is very, very small. Because the rich man or woman is so distracted, so elevated in their own thing, and so entwined in what they have, that they cannot see the invisible chains that grip them. And it's a sight issue for the rich person. You know what's amazing is that one of the more common miracles that you see Jesus performing in the New Testament is opening the eyes of the blind. And that is, is, is striking to me. I mean, you can't go very many passages without seeing Jesus heal a blind guy or a few blind guys, you know, or people that ha- are having trouble. That, that's constant. But, but really, it's kind of an uncommon condition. I know one blind person, and I know a lot of people. It is not very frequent that you come across someone who is really legally blind. But yet, it seems like constantly in the scripture, you're seeing this healing of the blind. So physical blindness is kind of rare. But listen, spiritual blindness is rampant. Spiritual blindness is epidemic. And here's the bad news about spiritual blindness. The bad news is that every one of us has it to some degree. And that's just common sense, right? I mean, how many of you can see Jesus right now? He's here. Can't see him. How many people can see what's going on in in the spiritual realms? Can't see. We're we're spiritually masked. All of us suffer from spiritual blindness to some degree. Here's the good news about spiritual blindness. Ready for it? There's not a darn thing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to heal your spiritual blindness. And you say, well, that's good news? That doesn't sound like good news. No, it is good news because when there is nothing that you can do about something, it means that it's something that only God can do. And when you couple that with the fact that Jesus over and over again in the New Testament is healing blinded people, what it reveals is that he is willing and wanting to give to us spiritual vision. Revelation chapter 3 verse 18 It's not going to come up on the screen, but it says, Jesus said that we should anoint our eyes with eye salve. You look, what in the world does that mean? It means that we go to him and we say, Lord, I need vision. I need to see because there are so many things that we can't see. We can't see the spiritual realm. We can't see the relationship that exists between the invisible, the physical and the spiritual world. We can't see culture in a proper way to really understand it in its true context. See, we, we look and we look out, like right now, you and I, we look out and we see a culture that we live in. And, and we watch what people are doing, we see what they value in this whole thing, and, and we make judgments and we make assumptions about what's going on in culture based upon what our understanding is and where we came from. 
And so sometimes we look at a culture like the culture that we live in, and we say, the culture is corrupt. And yes, believe me, there is certainly corruption in the culture. But sometimes it's not necessarily corruption. Sometimes it's just culture. But because of where we came from, we're accustomed traditionally to calling it corruption. And so we need vision from God to be able to see what he sees, that our values are in the right place concerning the invisible things. We're around people all the time. We interact with people at home, at work, in church. And all we see is what's on the surface, the physical. But we can't see underneath. We can't see the motives. We can't see the intentions. We can't see the why behind what people are doing. All of that is stuff that we're blind to. But that means that Jesus is able to give us vision. The Bible calls it good judgment or discernment so that we can see invisible things. It doesn't come from us, but it comes from him. And he's willing to do it for us. Sometimes we have an interruption come into our life. Happened to you? Happens to me. My wife going away for three days? That's an interruption, (laughs) right? But sometimes if our eyes are open and we're seeing with vision that Jesus gives us, what we interpret to be an interruption is actually an opportunity. There's something in it that he is doing that we can't see because we're not physically, or I'm sorry, spiritually seeing properly. And so vision is so important. And if we can't see, then we live in a prison. And the reason why there's so much healing of vision in the Bible is because it's the one thing that Jesus wants to do for us. Now, Peter asks a question. He says this in verse 27. It says, Then answered Peter, and he said unto him, I'm so glad Peter asked this question. He said, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed you what shall we have therefore? Now, aren't you glad Peter asked that? Because basically what Peter's saying is like, all right, we understand the, the, the rich man didn't want, went away sorrowful, couldn't see, got it. But Lord, we did. We gave everything up. We gave up our businesses. We gave up our homes. We gave up our schedule, our calendar. We gave up, Lord, we did. Lord, what are we going to get? What do we get in, in, in this whole thing? Because not only are we keeping the commandments, I mean, we're with Jesus. When we're with Jesus, we don't sin, you know? Not only are we keeping the commandments, but we gave up all. What are we going to get for it? And I love Jesus' answer because he tells us, he tells us what it is that we receive when we live with an open hand. Jesus said unto them, he said, Verily I say unto you, that you which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that has forsaken houses, brethren, sister, father, mother, wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. So Jesus answers the question by saying, listen, there are three things that you can count on that you will receive. One of them is personal and two of them are universal, meaning one of them applies to the individual and two of them apply to everyone regardless. What is the personal? He says that you, speaking to the 12, he says that you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, he's not saying that to you and I that are here tonight because that is not the place that's been prepared for us eternally. But there is a place that has been prepared for us eternally. There is a work for us to do while we're here, a purpose for us to fulfill. 
And there is a place and an inheritance that's reserved for us in heaven. And what Jesus is saying is this, is that when you live in the right place, you are guaranteed that you are going to end up in the place that was prepared for you. Maybe not on one of those 12 thrones, but certainly it's going to be the place that God made you for. That's the individual. But then there is the universal. Applies to everyone. He says, everyone, verse 29, that has forsaken houses and all those other things, he says, you will receive a hundredfold and you will inherit everlasting life. You, for everything that you ever give up for my name's sake, you're going to receive more than what you gave. That's a rule. That's a generality. He says, everyone that forsakes is going to receive a hundredfold more. And then finally, he says, they will receive everlasting life. So you're going to receive more and you're going to receive everlasting life. Now, he doesn't stop there. And we're going to come back to that because it really is the application and why, why all this makes sense and means something to us. But notice what he says in verse 30. He says, but... Little asterisks there. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Huh? What do you mean, Lord? For, and it connects the two, the two conversations. He says, for the kingdom of heaven, verse 1 of chapter 20, is like a man that is a householder which went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, I want you to just mark that, that he makes a contract. He makes an agreement with many. That if you work in my vineyard for the day, I will pay you a day's wage. That's what a penny or a denarius was. I'll pay you a day's wage for a day's work. So he makes an agreement. Remember what the rich young ruler wanted? What did he want? An agreement. Quid pro quo. You do this, I'll do this. There's an agreement made with the first. And it says that he went out about the third hour, 9 a.m., and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And they went their way. So he hires more people, but there's no agreement. The agreement is you go work, and I'll just give you something. And again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And then about the eleventh hour, so 5 p.m., probably one hour before the workday is over, He went out and he found others standing idle and he said unto them, why do you stand here all the day idle? And they said, because no one has hired us. And so he said unto them, go you also into the vineyard and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening came, the Lord of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their hire beginning from the last to the first. And when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, listen, they received every man a penny. They received every man a penny penny so the people that only worked one hour were given the fullness of the day's wage that was promised at the beginning but when the first came verse 10 they supposed that they should receive more and they likewise received every man a penny and when they had received it they murmured against the good men of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and you have made them equal to us which have borne the burden in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, and he said, Friend, I do you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a penny? Take what is yours and go your way, and I will give unto this last even as unto you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Is your eye evil because I am good? 
So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last, for many be called, but few are chosen. Now this is connected to two things. One, it's connected to those that did have a covenant with God. The people that were given the law, now they wouldn't be able to keep it, they wouldn't fulfill their portion, but to them, they would get what they agreed for. Everyone else, Jesus calls, and Jesus rewards according to his goodness, not according to what is earned or what is deserved. That's the gift of his grace. But furthermore, he's speaking this to Peter, who's got money signs in his eyes as he asks the question, Lord, what will we have? We've given up all to follow you. And you know what Jesus' answer was? And I love it. It's so comforting to me because I ain't no Peter. He's saying, you know what, Peter? He says, I'm going to give to everyone the exact same thing. What is the exact same thing? You're going to find your place. For them, 12 thrones judging 12 tribes. For you and me, it will be equally as glorious because it's what we were fitted and made for eternally. For everything that you give up because you want to live completely for him and you want your life to be whole and what that costs you, for everything that you give up, you will receive a hundredfold and you'll inherit everlasting life. And here's the most amazing thing about it is that it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. You could be in youth, and you say, I want to serve you, Lord, and he's going to make sure you get there. You could be in the middle ages of your life, and you say, you know what, I've been wandering for all these years, and I feel like it's just too late for me. And Jesus looks at you, and he says, it's not too late for you. You want to be in the vineyard? Come on. You might be in the 11th hour of your existence and you might be saying, you know what, I feel like I have so much regret, like I've wasted so much time. I feel like there's so many things undone that I haven't done for Jesus, that I haven't done that really matter, that really less. It doesn't matter. You surrender in the 11th hour and you say, Lord, put me in your vineyard, in your place, and I will do it for you. Lord, I'll serve you. I read in my one-year Bible devotions recently, it's Deuteronomy chapter 33, and it's just the one year. Nobody reads Deuteronomy because they just feel led to, you know, usually, anyways. You know, sometimes. I don't mean to mock or anything, but it's just not common. And I was reading as I was going through, and I read in Deuteronomy chapter 33, and Moses was just, like, speaking blessing upon the 12 tribes. This is what God's going to do for you in, in your future and, and what you've got and this whole thing. And God said this to the tribe of Joseph. It's Genesis chapter uh, uh, 33. I'm sorry, not Genesis. Deuteronomy 33, verse 13. Listen, listen to it. It's, it's powerful. And there's a point here. It says that Joseph, to Joseph he said, Blessed of the Lord be his land. For the precious things of heaven, for the dew, and for the deep that couches beneath, and for the precious fruits brought forth by the sun, for the precious things put forth by the moon. Do you see that in verse 14? He says, for the precious things put forth by the moon and for the chief things of the ancient mountains and for the precious things of the lasting hills. God promises to Joseph, he gives this blessing upon Joseph and he says, listen, I have tucked some amazing treasures into your land. That's the whole of the prophecy that was given to Joseph. It all concerned his land. Now, the reason that stuck out to me the reason why I even noticed that, because that's kind of one of those things that you would just read and pass over, is because the day before I read that, I read this article. And it comes from the Times of Israel, and it was written just this year. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just listen to this part. It says, an Israeli mining company has announced 
that a new type of mineral it found in the country's northern Carmel mountain range happens to be the land given to Joseph, and which has a chemical composition previously found only in outer space, was last week formally recognized by the International Mineralogical Association. The Shefa Yamim Company began unearthing sapphire gemstones and volcanic rock in the area near Haifa in 2014, according to a statement on the company's website. What did, what did God say way back before they even came into the land? He says, I have tucked the precious things of heaven, the precious things of the earth, and the precious things of the moon, and I've put them in your land. It took them 4,000 years to find it. That's a picture of it right there. It's called Carmel. You look it up. Carmelite, Carmelite, something like that, you know, because of where they found it and the whole thing. It's more precious than diamond. It's harder than diamond. And they have no idea how much of it that is there or how much it's worth. Amazing. 4,000 years it has been there. Do you know why that, that hit me so hard? Not, not, oh, okay, I read an article, I saw it in Deuteronomy. Here's why it hit me. It hit me. It didn't just, not my brain, it hit me. Here's why. Because of all the 12 tribes, when they were given their portion, their inheritance in the land, one of the 12 tribes complained that what they was given was not good enough. You know who it was? Joseph. Joshua chapter 17, I think is right around verse 14. They complained. It says that the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me but one lot and one portion to inherit, seeing I'm such a great people for as much as the Lord has blessed me hitherto. They complained about it. And Joshua kind of gives them a a stiff rebuke. You can go and read it later. Here's the point why I share that in this message. And what I want to say to you tonight, I believe it's what God wants you to hear tonight from this message. Is that God has made you so uniquely individual. And what he has made you for and what he has placed in you is so precious that if if you even knew the, the first part of it, it would blow your mind. But it is not going to be found in anything that you will obtain, achieve, or experience in this world. Because it's spiritual, it's from God, and it can only come from God. He's the only one that can reveal it to you. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I think it's verse 9, it says that I has not seen... An ear has not heard, neither has it even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. I hasn't seen it, meaning that no one in the world has ever seen what it is that God's prepared for you and put in you. No one's ever even heard about or thought about. It's never even entered into someone's mind the things that God has placed in you for you to do, for you to accomplish. It's yours. It's from him. But you know where you find it? You find it when you start to look at him. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, it says, it says these words. It says, now this, the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then it says in the next verse, come on, Joel, put it up there, man. I'm counting on you. But we all, with open face, meaning there's nothing hindering, there's nothing blocking, There's no restriction. There's nothing keeping you back from seeing it. Your sin has been removed. Obstacles have been removed. Everything has been removed. There's nothing hindering you from seeing it. We with open face 
beholding like we're looking in a mirror, but we're not looking in a mirror. We're looking at what? The glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. So what is it saying? It's saying, listen, if you want to know what God has put in you, even if you're in the 11th hour of your existence and you say, God, there's something in here and I feel like I've been wandering my entire life, but I want it to come out. What you need to know is that there is no barrier and hindrance from keeping you from looking where you need to look to find what it is that he wants to reveal. He's revealed it by his spirit. No one's ever thought of it before, but our eyes have to be on him. Our vision and our gaze has to be set upon him. If our eye is single, if it's whole, if it's in the right place, if our values are in the right place, if we will strip away the middleman, the barrier of looking at other people, well, a career counselor is going to help me. Or looking at someone who I admire or idolize is going to help me to become more like what I think I should be. Or reading it in a book or hearing another sermon, or having a mentor, none of that is going to be where you're going to find it. It's when with open face, those things stripped away, you look to Jesus and you say, I believe that your cross is enough for the forgiveness of my sins, for the adoption of my life, and I'm looking to you, God, to lead me into what it is that you made me for. That it's there that you're changed into the same image from glory to glory. And it's in that, that is the meaning of life. It's in that, it's in him, it's in knowing him, it's in believing and looking. It's in seeing and walking and waiting and trusting in him and him alone and saying, God, what did you put in here? Where is the gemstone hidden, God? Because I know it's there. You said it is, but only you can uncover it. It's only there. In his presence, looking at him that he begins to reveal what it is that you and I have been made for. But if our eyes are fixed upon the things of this world, then we, like that rich man, we may obtain everything that we chase after, but we live in sorrow. And we miss out on the reason for our existence. We're going to close the service And I pray in Jesus' name that the Spirit of God would fall upon this room and fall upon our hearts in such a way that he would give us the clarity, the healing of our vision to be able to see honestly in ourselves what it is that we've placed our priorities on, what it is that we've been looking at, who it is that we've been looking to, and what the outcome of that has been in our life. And that by his grace... He would stir up and give to us the faith to believe that we can take our eyes off of the chains that we can set our eyes upon him and live with an open hand. See, that's what it is. It's not about giving everything away. That's not the call. He's not saying sell your house and just go. No, no, no. It's living with an open hand, meaning that what God places in my hand today is mine to enjoy. But I'm living in such a way that It's not mine. It's his, and he's given it, and he can take it out at any time, and then he'll put something else in it. He says a hundredfold. 
And in the process of that, he moves us from place to place and thing to thing, and he unfolds from our life what he's sown into it from our birth. He germinates the seeds that we've buried. When we close our hand, we're locking the chains of our own prison. It's an open hand. It's eyes set on him. It's an open hand, and it's eyes on him. He's the Lord. He's our Father. He's our shepherd. He's our savior. And it's not too late. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you recorded these things for our insight, that they might be a light for our path. And Lord, as we close the service tonight and we ask you, Lord, for clarity by your Holy Spirit that we might assess our lives rightly and see our lives rightly. I pray, Father, if there's anyone in this room right now that is longing to live and that feels like they're blind or feels like they're lost or wandering. I pray, Father, that you, by your grace in Jesus' name, would heal their vision right now. That you'd reveal the valueless to be the filth that it is. And you would open the glory of heaven to see, Lord, the eternal value in what you are and who you are that we would believe you, Lord, for what you've made for us. So help us, Lord, now, I pray in Jesus' name. Lord, that you would lift us off the plane of this world and that you would put meaning in our existence. Help us, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.